thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. 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 Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Space. Time. Brain. Life. The universe. This week on The Naked Scientists, the rise of the machines. Could an artificially intelligent robot take your job anytime soon? As much as 47% of current US employment might be at high risk of automation over the next 20 years. And then, could they take over the world, Terminator style? Join me, Greg Jackson, for the next hour as we journey into the world of cyborgs to see if all of this could turn from science fiction into science fact. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Signs that the artificial intelligence industry is booming are everywhere. Google snatched DeepMind, London-based AI startup, from Facebook for a rumoured $400 million. And IBM is using a computer named Watson to analyse our health records. The list really does go on, and I found myself watching in fascination and fear. Elon Musk recently gave a speech at MIT. You know, the Elon Musk who co-founded PayPal. He's probably one of the technologists of our time. And as a result, you would have thought he would look upon the future of artificial intelligence with excitement. Not so much. He described artificial intelligence as summoning the demon and said that by building a rival to human intelligence, we were creating the biggest threat to face the world. Not war, not the ballooning debts, and not the financial crises, but machines. And he's not alone. Stephen Hawking has expressed worry that these intelligent machines will take our jobs. In today's programme, I intend to find out just what sort of risk artificial intelligence may have on our jobs and whether the depictions of cyborgs in sci-fi movies hold any bearing on reality. We can find particular historic figures who were very clear that at some point in the future machines would be capable of thinking. And, of course, a great one is is Alan Turing. Uh, Another one is uh, a Cambridge-trained mathematician and statistician called I.J. Good, who grew up in the east end of London and won a scholarship to Cambridge, did his PhD with the G.H. Hardy, a great Cambridge mathematician, and, and then went to Bletchley Park to work with Turing. And he and Turing used to spend their evenings off talking about the future of machine intelligence. And they were both convinced, even at that stage in the 40s, that one day machines would be smarter than we are. Professor Hugh Price, he's Bertrand Russell philosopher at Cambridge University. And I'm also involved with the new Levy-Hume Centre for the Future of Intelligence, which is focusing on the challenges of the long-term future of artificial intelligence. People sometimes say, well, we don't even know what intelligence is. How can we be studying the long-term future of it? And to that, I like to say, well, perhaps we should think not about what intelligence is, but about what intelligence does. We know that uh, in many ways, we're the most capable creatures on this planet. And um, I think it's a fair bet that as artificial intelligence develops, it'll be capable of doing more and more of the things that we do, and in many cases doing them faster and better. And I think we can also be certain that it will do things that we simply can't do and things that we presently can't imagine. And this is why, in part, artificial intelligence is so hard to pin down. The idea is that machines would be able to do things that would normally require human intelligence. Take the game Go. It's an ancient Chinese game with a simple concept, surround and occupy territory, but it requires lots of abstract thinking and strategy to win, but also intuition, all skills which we consider to be uniquely human. 
And yet Google's machine, AlphaGo, beat the world champion Lee Sedol 4-1 this month. This machine, like many other intelligent machines, works by using an algorithm or a set of rules which will determine what move it'll make. A bit like a training manual, so if your opponent occupies this square and this square, do this. But what makes AlphaGo intelligent is that once it understood the rules, it then started to teach itself how to play better. Now, an algorithm in itself is not all that threatening. But an algorithm like Go that can teach itself raises some red flags. Hugh Price again. Nick Bostrom's famous example is Paperclip Factory, which has been programmed to produce paperclips, but it's smart enough to recognise that it can produce more paperclips if it removes certain sorts of constraints, uh, and eventually it's turning the whole planet, including us, into paperclips. So it's not malicious, it's just doing what it's been programmed to do. If it discovers that it can maximise on the variables we've given it by changing one of these other ones, if it's smart enough, there's not much we can do about it. Um, and that's one of the things that leads to some of the um, the challenges that we're going to face relatively soon. I mean, for example, there's a very good case for thinking that many, many jobs will be threatened over the next generation or so. If we have one of these systems making important decisions for us, in many cases it's going to be important to find out why it made the decision. Hugh makes an interesting point about accountability there, but then I spoke to Christian Sandvig and he made the point that artificial intelligence is already here. Well, I think most people think about artificial intelligence and they think maybe about some sort of sci-fi movie or something like that. But in fact, it encompasses a lot of things that we'd encounter every day. Christian is an associate professor at Michigan and his research looks at artificially intelligent algorithms, principally in media, so Facebook and the like. The kinds of things like recommendations for what to watch on Netflix or what you should buy on Amazon or even things like the kinds of things your friends are doing that show up in the Facebook newsfeed. How is that artificial intelligence? Well, I mean, one helpful thing to think about is the difference between algorithm and artificial intelligence. Sometimes we talk about how things are algorithmic, but that's a really old word. It just means that there's a process or a set of steps for it. So you can see that pretty much anything with a computer is going to involve algorithms, And there are going to be a set of steps because the computer needs to follow a set of steps in order to know what to do. But then there are these other cases, like, for example, uh, in the Facebook news feed, when you sign on to Facebook and you see what your friends are doing, um, here we have a system that, according to Facebook's public statements, is extremely complicated. And it uses many factors, uh, by one estimate, over 150 factors um, to determine what it thinks that you will like. And it incorporates things that you've done on the platform before, like clicking like or commenting on other people's material, things that you typed uh, when you posted status updates. Um, So I think artificial intelligence is kind of lying around in plain sight. It's just not all that obvious because I'm not sure I ever really thought about how Facebook tailors my newsfeed. Maybe I thought it actually was an unvarnished truth of maybe a temporal relevance in organization, but not necessarily picked um, and ranked. Right. And that makes sense because we have other platforms like Twitter that emphasize that it's a timeline, which is the word that they use. And so you might think that's the same thing for Facebook, but that's not actually what happens. In fact, it's quite a complicated process to decide what to show you. How they do it, though, is something of a mystery. People have taken a good old guess, but in reality, Facebook considers their intelligent algorithm valuable, and so they don't share their secrets. But why do they even do it in the first place? You know, there's a simple explanation, and that's that, you know, if it's totally unfiltered, it actually doesn't work that well in some circumstances. So maybe if you use Twitter, you've noticed that if a friend of yours is at some sort of event and they're really excited about it and they start tweeting a lot, they just kind of flood your Twitter stream with their updates and you can't see any of your other friends because they're just started posting a lot more. So there's some weird characteristics of just having everything in real time or in chronological order in the order that it was posted that might not be ideal. But beyond that, I mean, I think there's a, an... I don't want to sound... You know, like, like it's sinister, but I think that there's an important motive here, right? These are advertising-supported companies, and it's important for them to mix in advertising 
uh, into your experience. And they have sidebar ads, yes, but it's also very important for them to figure out ways to monetize their platform. Monetizing aside, it's interesting to hear about how there's this whole other invisible layer operating that, at least on my part, I was completely unaware of. And it's not just your timeline either. Facebook can now automatically tag your friends in a photo using facial recognition software, something that us mere mortals had to do before. In other words, even Facebook is becoming increasingly automated. I mean, it's really amazing the degree to which most mediated interaction today um, has this additional layer built into it, which is a, a computer making decisions. And because some of these decisions can be quite complicated, that means that the extra level of mediation, we're not even sure exactly what the results are. Usually we implement these systems by optimizing them for a certain goal. Like, let's design a system that makes people click on this as much as possible. But these systems might optimize for all kinds of other things, and we just don't understand the consequences. Unfortunately, I think we're just at the beginning of this, and as we see automation spread into all kinds of aspects of, of our lives, because computers are spreading into all kinds of access to our lives, we're, we're going to see this as a really significant change. And I don't think we're at all ready to understand the, uh, the implications of that. Well, get ready to understand what those implications might be, because here on The Naked Scientists, we're going to be getting to grips with the real implications of artificial intelligence. Until people can tell you that this gene, this gene, this gene might give you an IQ of this, then we might think about, well, do we want to do that? In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we find out if new genome engineering tools could mean we're on the road to designer babies. Plus, we unpack the latest cancer breakthrough and our gene of the month is making a terrible racket. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. I'm Greg Jackson, and this is The Naked Scientists. The one concern that Christian and Hugh have both raised is about how all our jobs are likely to become increasingly automated, and that eventually robots will take over and steal our jobs. Now, I don't know about you, but I just couldn't see how that would ever happen. That was until I saw Michael Osborne's paper. As much as 47% of current US employment might be at high risk of automation over the next 20 years. This was published a couple of years ago, and there's a link to it on our website, nakedscientist.com. And you know what? Michael is so well-placed to talk about this because he's not only an associate professor of machine learning at the University of Oxford, but also a co-director of the Oxford Mountain Programme of Technology and Employment, In other words, he knows a lot about intelligent machines and how they'll impact on society. So I have these two strands, these two hats that I wear. So one is as an academic researcher in machine learning itself, but the other hat is in investigating the societal impact of the development of such algorithms. So our program looks at the employment impact that intelligent algorithms are likely to have over the next 20 years. As you heard before... 47% of US jobs are at high risk of being taken over by robots. 47%. So it's a large figure. I mean, I should put some caveats on it. So firstly, that figure does not take into account the fact that firstly, what is actually automated will depend on regulation, societal acceptance, a whole host of other factors. It will depend on the relative costs of the machines and the humans involved in those tasks. And crucially, we're also not taking into account in that figure the emergence of new jobs. Okay, then. So how did you work this number out then, this 47%? Mm. So we're drawing on data from the US from an agency called ONET, which provides for 700 different occupations. For each of those occupations, a fairly long list of quantitative measures of skill requirements. So these measures would be things like a number between 0 and 100 saying just how much persuasion is required or finger dexterity or originality. How do you determine that sort of thing? It's an excellent (laughs) question and you'd have to ask Onet. But drawing upon that data, we thought that those skill requirements might be an interesting way of determining what distinguishes an automatable job from a non-automatable job. 
So we kind of cross-linked the um, skill requirements against the jobs that we had seen automated and against another list of jobs that we were fairly confident were not going to be automated within our horizon of 20 years. So using those two different categories and relating it to those different skill requirements, we actually taught a machine learning algorithm, exactly the same kind of algorithm we're expecting might have impact on employment, the difference between automatable and non-automatable jobs. And on that basis, it was able to come back and tell us just how much of it might be susceptible to automation. What makes a job susceptible to automation there? You mm. talked about unautomatable jobs and automatable jobs. Yeah, so that was another conclusion from our study was the uh, characteristics of jobs that are not automatable. And we kind of lumped these together into what we called bottlenecks to automation. The first of those bottlenecks was originality. Simply put, the more original your job is, the less susceptible it is to automation. Mm-hmm. So painters are safe. <laughs> painters are relatively safe, yeah. <laughs> what, what other sort of skill sets did you decide were also unautomatable? The second of our bottlenecks was social intelligence. So here we're thinking of skills like negotiation or persuasion, the kinds of high-level social functions that come relatively natural to us, but are relatively difficult to make explicit in such a way that those tasks could be reproduced by code. Mm-hmm. And the third bottleneck? The third bottleneck was that of uh, autonomous perception and manipulation. And this one's a little bit more subtle, perhaps. So it certainly is possible to get a robot to interact with physical objects in the world around it. But it's important to distinguish that kind of manipulation from the manipulation that we perform in our day-to-day lives. So again, to give a concrete example, I'm sitting here in the studio picking up a glass of water. And in doing so, I was required to distinguish the glass from the table that sits beneath it, despite the fact that the glass is transparent. I needed to, before I even picked up the glass, have some idea of how much it weighed so I could grip it with sufficient force but also have some expectation for its material characteristics so that I didn't shatter it when I picked it up by applying too much force. So you can see that even in that relatively intuitive action, I've deployed a whole host of subtle, tacit knowledge about my environment that, again, is very difficult to reproduce in an algorithm. What would that be in terms of jobs, though? Because obviously we don't Mm. have, well, I am not lucky enough to have someone pick up my glass of water for me every day and feed (laughs) it to me. So where would I see that day to day? So the kinds of jobs that might be non-automatable as a result would include hairdressing, for example, might include gardening. The bottlenecks you've been describing to me in some ways are things that are very natural to us. They don't seem Mm. to have a defined set of rules that Mm. at least I could very easily distinguish. And is that in part why they're very hard to code for and create an algorithm for? Exactly. We as humans draw upon these deep reservoirs of tacit knowledge about our society, our companions, our environment, all stuff that's very difficult to kind of unpick and, as I say, write out explicitly in code. So we've talked about the jobs that are going to be relatively safe. Who is then at risk? Because surely Mm. a little bit of these skills are involved in everyone's jobs. So one particular category of jobs that's likely at high risk are those jobs that rely almost entirely upon storing accessing and perhaps doing some simple processing of data. So I'm thinking here of examples including um, perhaps paralegals, whose job in large part is digging through uh, case files. I'm thinking about people like auditors who might be required to inspect large amounts of uh, financial data on a company. So these are the kinds of tasks that, to be honest, might now be better performed by an algorithm which is able to scale to processing much larger volumes of data, is perhaps more vigilant, they're going to be just as attentive to the millionth bit of data as the first. They're not going to, for example, um, be influenced by how long it's been since they had lunch. I suppose they uh, don't need a sick day or anything like that. Exactly. How about radio producers and presenters? (laughs) Right, so... Uh, Let me say that in this kind of social interaction that we're having, for example, there's quite likely a large amount of um, social intelligence deployed that's going to be difficult to reproduce in an algorithm. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm safe. Congratulations. And if you want to see how safe you are, NPR have designed a nifty web tool based on Michael's work, which means you can select your profession and see if you're safe or not so safe. It's on our website, nakedscientist.com, or just search. 
Will your job be done by a machine? Neuroses aside, how will this take over work in practice? I mean, there's hardly going to be an applicant for my role in the form of a bit of software, is there? The scary thing is, of course, that software has next to zero marginal cost of reproduction. So once someone has developed an intelligent algorithm capable of doing a task that was previously performed by humans, that software can, at least in principle, be deployed across the entire world at next to zero cost. So in many cases, we might see relatively rapid transitions to automated software solutions once that uh, technology is developed. Are you surprised or indeed do you think things should become increasingly automated? On the should question, of course, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that these automated solutions are delivering products to us at increasingly low cost. On the other side of things, things are not so rosy. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that while um, these jobs are replaced by an algorithm, they might not be jobs that any human fundamentally wants to do. There's an argument to be made that um, if a job is able to be replaced by an algorithm, it's kind of below the dignity of a human being. And Wow, that's pretty... um, It's a strong claim, I would agree. Yeah, Yeah, but to me, those bottlenecks that I identified before, the creativity and social intelligence, are really the hallmarks of what we as human beings find satisfying and pleasurable. You know, consider the tasks we do in our spare time, our hobbies. They are almost universally things that involve some degree of interacting with other humans or being creative. So to me... The kinds of jobs that will remain after automation are going to be increasingly satisfying and enjoyable. I suppose in some ways Michael is right, and this revolution in machines is in some ways akin to the Industrial Revolution we saw. In the short term, lots of unemployment, but in the long term, a whole new industry was born, the service industry, and some might argue that this included many more elements of what makes us human, i.e. that social interaction. And the more I looked around daily life, the more I could see evidence for it. If I had the luxury of a personal assistant previously, would my smartphone have taken their job? Take me to the Department of Engineering. Getting directions to Cambridge University Engineering Department. Conveniently enough for me, Melitza Garshitz at the Department of Engineering in Cambridge University is working on a new generation of personal assistants. In 120 yards, the destination is on your right. And unlike today's personal assistants, Melissa hopes that one day we'll be able to have proper conversations with these things, what experts call dialogue systems. Arrived at Cambridge University Engineering Department. You probably all have heard of Siri on on iPhone or other personal assistants, but these systems can be more widely used in situations like banking, or they can be used for um, uh, providing healthcare information for elderly people, for instance. These systems normally have three components. The first component, uh, which is called speech understanding, is trying to extract the meaning from the speech. The second component, which is called dialogue management, tries to decide what is the best response or what we call action to take to say to the user. And then the final component generates this response into speech. None of this is trivial. Putting speech into text, understanding that and then deciding what the best action is and then turning that back into speech. It's really complicated, especially that middle step of understanding and actioning. Currently, systems like Siri and Google all operate on a series of rules. Someone has literally sat down and thought about all the possible things you could ever want to ask your smartphone, written it into a code and voila, sounds painstakingly protracted. Now, this is obviously suboptimal because a human can't think of all possible situations and it's very expensive to develop such systems. So what we are doing is try to use machine learning to tackle this problem, to make these systems better. When you say machine learning, what do you mean? Are you literally sitting down a computer and saying this is X and this is Y? Um, Not really. So the idea of machine learning is that the machine could analyze data and then try to build a model and then, based on that model, make predictions. 
So the prediction could be what the user wants, or the prediction could be what the systems should say back to the user. A particular uh, machine learning method that is uh, very useful for building dialogue system is based on reinforcement learning. Reinforcement learning is all about trial and error. In machine learning, we normally have two ways of learning. One is supervised learning, and you can think of that you have a teacher who is teaching you. So the teacher is showing you how to do something, and then what you try to do, you try to imitate your teacher and, and do it as good as teacher is doing. Reinforcement learning is very different. In reinforcement learning, you explore different possibilities. You don't have the teacher, but you have... A parent, say, who will give you occasional reward based on, on what you did, if you did something well. And then in the in similar ways, like children are trying to get as much presence from their parents, the system is also trying to maximize its reward. And indeed, many reinforcement learning algorithms were inspired from nature and how the biological systems learn. It just made me thinking of kids wanting treats. I mean, is there a chocolate equivalent for a machine? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the <laughs> reward is, is numerical and it is an equivalent of chocolate. <laughs> and speaking of food, we decided to dial up the dialogue system in search of some lunch. What kind of food would you like? Hi, I'm looking for a Chinese restaurant in the centre, please. HK Fusion is a nice place. It serves Chinese food. Is it in the center? HK Fusion is a nice place. Their address is 21 Burla Street, City Center. Can you tell me their phone number? HK Fusion is a nice place. Their phone number is 012233559099. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. You can very easily see that to and fro, that conversation. It's got context of what you're asking there. So from that conversation, it's learning every time someone dials up and asks for a specific food, whether that's Chinese or pizza. But what will it be learning from that conversation or how will it be learning from that conversation? So from time to time, it would be asking somebody to enter their feedback. At other times, it's trying to estimate the feedback on its own. And then uh, what it does, it tries to analyze which actions it took and what feedback it got. One thing it wants to maximize is the chance of success. When it provides all information that the user has asked for, that's counted as successful dialogue. But that is not the only component that is trying to optimize. It also tries to offer as much information as possible in as few turns as possible because users generally don't like to hang around and talk to dialogue systems forever. So it tries to adjust it, its actions so that it optimizes these two objectives. So it sort of almost goes away and reflects, I mean, not unlike a human, what was good and what was bad about that conversation. Yeah, exactly. That's a very good comparison. So in the future, would you envisage this being much more broader than just ordering Chinese food in the city centre? Yes, my goal is to um, model more uh, richer conversation. And in particular, uh, one idea that I have is to build a dialogue system that can be used for prevention of mental health illnesses. And the idea would be to develop a dialogue system that everybody could access on their phone whenever they like, whenever they have a problem, they could get anonymous instant support. So I think that would certainly have huge impact. But also from a scientific point of view, these dialogues would be much richer. So it wouldn't be about ordering Chinese food, but rather about trying to model real conversation. Melissa Garshech from the University of Cambridge with me, Greer Jackson, on The Naked Scientists. Coming up, could a machine steal your job and evolve to see us humans as carbon-gobbling species and exterminators? In the beginning, man created machines to lead their society. For the world without form and order, darkness was upon the face of the earth. This is the story of our genesis. Well, as I found out... As much as 47% of current US employment might be at high risk of automation over the next 20 years. So it looks like the job bit is inevitable. 
As for wiping out all of humanity, we'll get to that soon, as soon as we understand how this could possibly happen, because this all kind of feels like something beyond our wildest dreams. Now, machine-like militias are still quite narrow in intelligence. If a robot is going to take over the world, we'll need to get to a more general intelligence, where a machine could actually think for itself. But how do we do that? There are two ways, and both are inspired by nature itself. One is by reverse engineering the brain, and we'll come to this. But the other is by copying evolution. Isn't it, Georgia Mills? Exactly. We're going to use evolution to make the next generation of super robots. So if we take us humans as examples, how did we get clever? Well, there are a number of different theories on exactly when and how humans and our ancestors became intelligent. And even though we don't know the exact reason we became smart, we do know the mechanism, and that's evolution. So the individuals who weren't so smart gradually got booted from the gene pool, essentially. (laughs) Put it nicely. (laughs) Booted, dead, (laughs) meaning that as a species, we got smarter and smarter. And then we eventually get to where we are today, where we're able to cure diseases, sending rockets into space. I mean, this is a really complicated process. It involves genes and environmental pressures. So how do you mimic this? Well, if we think about evolution, it involves a code. So that's DNA. And when a living thing has offspring, there are tiny changes in this code, which is maybe caused by mixing the DNA with another organism or by errors in the code. So that's a mutation. And this causes variation. And then if some things do better than others in this variation, we have what we call natural selection, which is kind of the bare bones of evolution. So if you take this idea and change it from a biological code into a computer code... Simple. Simple. You can create a system where these little iterations crop up in each generation of code, and then you can have a system in place which acts as the natural selection, testing the code for the output you want. It selects the ones that are most successful, and then the idea is, as each generation goes on, you get better and better and better at doing what you want to do. All I'm imagining is robots having sex, and I'm assuming that's not quite how it's going to work in practice. Maybe one day. (laughs) I'm not sure I'd want to witness that, you know. (laughs) I would. (laughs) Oh, that is recording, Georgia. You do realise everything I record is licensed to go in. (laughs) You're not going to use that. So at the moment, it's more like the idea of an algorithm that makes this little piece of software run around on a computer screen, that kind of very basic thing. But there is an example here in Cambridge where someone has built a robot that can make these little babies, test them, and then make more and more babies that can go on and do better and better. And I actually went to see this robot at a conference and uh, I was introduced to it by Louise Osbroadbeck. It looks to me a bit like one of the stereotypical factory robots, a sort of overreaching arm. What is it actually trying to do? It is a factory robot. It has a gripper and like a hot glue gun in front, an industrial one. So it has only two kinds of components. It has wooden cubes and it has those cubes with the motors in there. And it glues them together to build the robot. We're trying to automate the design for robots, so it's randomly coming up with a design for a robot that walks and we're iterating this design by testing it. So we build 10 robots and we test how it works and then take the best ones and use like evolution to generate a next generation of robots and then we build them again, test them again and so on. And the goal is that in the, eventually the small robot can move forwards when we turn on its motors. Uh, over there, there's uh, one of the walking robots. Uh, Can I see it walk? Sure. <laughs> I don't know quite how to explain what just happened, but the squares sort of had a spasm and then it moved around. What, what's going on here? Uh, as I said, we glue, we glue these cubes together and two of them have a servo motor in there which can move one side of the cube back and forth. And we don't know in advance whether it's going to work and how it's going to work, but somehow it moved away. They were doing what? They were crawling. Crawling is a kind way of putting it. Imagine two cubes stuck together and just sort of swizzling about and then somehow this kind of cube abomination sort of shuffles slowly across a table. That sounds great, but what is this demonstrating? So this 
cube whizzing along is actually twice as good as the first cube this robot created. But what's interesting is there was no input from a coder or an engineer to make this new one better. It was all left down to the robot. So what happened is it made 10 little babies. And in these baby cubes, there are these this variation in quite how they're glued together. And then these 10 babies are tested against each other. The fastest one of these cubes that twists along is sort of said, you're the winner, you, you've survived, you're in the gene pool. The computer takes the design from that cube baby and says, this is the winner, makes 10 slight iterations from that design, like the mutations I mentioned earlier, and then does the whole process again. So the idea being, each generation, the designs get slightly, slightly better. And I think after about 10 generations, they got twice as fast at crawling. I imagine you'd be able to scale this up beyond just crawling into other skills that we might actually need to form something that resembles artificial intelligence then. So there are examples of people using this kind of mimicking of evolution to design the best kind of antennae or to design mirrors that can funnel light for solar panels and things like that. And there's no reason in principle it can't be used to try and make intelligent computers. In a way then... It's these computers are thinking outside the box. They're thinking in ways that humans wouldn't be able to think and they're thinking of ways that they can change and evolve to be much better in their design than perhaps we even could design them to be. Well, I'll hold you back on the word thinking there. There is no thinking going on. It is just making random changes in this code and then by just simply testing and changing and testing and changing again, the actual effect we get is something that looks like this robot has been really creative and has solved the problem, but really it's just using this random process of evolution. By having this process being random, I'm assuming that's not perfect. There aren't environmental pressures which say, do this. It's completely random. So surely there's got to be a catch here. You've got your finger on it right there. So the thing about evolution is it doesn't say, let's go and have great big brains. That's exactly what we need. There are a whole host of things that might be selected for. There's also the problem that evolution, unfortunately, takes millions of years. So we kind of want to speed the process up. And the other problem is mutations. I mentioned them earlier. They're often bad. If you think about mutations, they're associated with things like cancer. But we have the advantage here. So we can be a bit sneaky. We can say only good mutations in the code from now on. We can speed up generation times and things like that. And we can say we only want it to be selected for intelligence. So we have these advantages here over evolution, but it's still not clear if this will actually be enough to get these super intelligent computers. If that's not enough then, what about option number two? Could copying the brain or what scientists call reverse engineering the brain hold the answer? Well, this is what one Dr Richard Turner is tackling at the University of Cambridge. Well, simply put, the brain is the most complicated object that we know about in the whole universe at the moment. It contains, roughly speaking, 100 billion neurons, which are wired in an incredibly complicated way. And it's able to use that structure to process incoming information, make decisions about what it should do in light of that information, and then action those decisions, i.e. make your muscles move. At the moment, we know next to nothing about how that entire system carries out those three basic fundamental operations. Although by looking at particular parts of the system where we think we know what the functionality is, we're able to make some small progress. When you say some small progress, you mean in copying or what you might call reverse engineering the brain? Both. So I've been looking at the principles by which people process sounds and can they be used to develop computer systems for processing sounds in the same ways that that people do. How we process sound is remarkable. Right now, if you stopped what you're doing, how many different sounds can you hear? Three? Four? Five? Ten? Yet you can still listen to me and not be distracted by all those sounds. Now think about it from a machine's perspective. How does it know which sounds to ignore and which ones to pay attention to? Well, Richard's got that sorted. By understanding the statistics of sound, you can make a machine learn to distinguish different noises from a camping trip, say. In the clip, I start by a campfire and then you'll hear my footsteps as I walk uh, through gravel. Then I go past a babbling stream, and the wind then starts to get more strong. 
and I unzip my tent and get in and it turns out I do this just in time because it starts to rain. Now, all of those sounds are examples of what we call audio textures. They're comprised of many independent events like um, individual raindrops falling on a surface, which in combination we hear as um, the sound of rain. And perhaps what's remarkable about those clips is each one of those sounds is in fact synthetic. It was produced by taking a short clip from a camping trip and then training a machine learning algorithm to learn the statistics of those sounds I mean, I think of a sound as a sound. I don't see it as a, or hear it as a series of statistics. So what do you mean by that? Take the rain sound, for example. The rain sound, when you take short clips of it, contains different patterns of falling raindrops. And so the thing which is constant through time is not the sound waveform itself. It's the statistics. It's sort of the rate with which these raindrops appear and the properties of the surface and so on and so forth. OK, I see. So this computer has emulated those sounds it's a synthetic sound why is that beneficial in helping you reverse engineer the brain yeah that's a good question at the moment this just sounds like a cute trick so uh, i was gonna say i'm loving it from a radio point of view i could use that sort of computer in my uh, in my line of work indeed um, but when we look at the way that the computer algorithm does this we think that it's using principles which are similar to those uh, which are, are used by the human brain When you say we think, it makes me think you're unsure. Does that mean you're not entirely sure how the machine is working out or the other way around, you're not sure how humans are able to distinguish and refocus their ears? We're unsure in the sense that we don't know whether the brain of the machine is operating in the same way that the brain of a a person is, even though it responds in a similar way. But hang on a second, you've built this machine. How can you not know how it works? Well, this is one of the beauties of machine learning. I've been looking at what's called unsupervised algorithms. So you just get data. The data's unstructured. You don't know what's going on. You don't even know what's good to predict. And so the algorithm itself has to figure out what the structure is. And I think much of the future advances in machine learning will move towards these unsupervised settings. And why I think they're really interesting is that's the setting that the human brain is faced with. It's not given a teacher which is able to give it the labels of millions and millions of objects. It has to automatically adapt. Maybe it gets a few labels from your mum and dad, but the number of labelled examples you get is essentially zero when you compare it to what um, our current state-of-the-art object recognition system is given. So in an ideal world, we'd scale this up. This is obviously just looking at sound, but we'd scale this up to emulate, what, the whole brain and and everything that we do? To put it in sort of simple terms, we have no idea of the software that the brain runs at the moment, and um, it's going to take a long time to figure out details of that software that would be necessary to come up with, say, superintelligent algorithms. Richard Turner from the University of Cambridge talking to me, Greer Jackson, on The Naked Scientists. There may be a long way to go when it comes to figuring out the details of creating a super intelligent humanoid robot. In principle, though, it's possible. So let's say, hypothetically, we were able to make a super intelligent algorithm. What I want to know is, could you then get from this to the type of thing you see on sci-fi movies, Terminator, Skynet, or the one I found most haunting, Ex Machina. This is what industry folk call a singularity. No. Uh, Or if you want the long answer, no. Well, that sort of shut me up, hasn't it? My name is Martin Robbins. I've worked in AI and industry for the last eight or nine years, and um, I write The Guardian's Raising How blog on artificial intelligence and data science. Martin and our cat Arnie sat down for a cuppa to mull over why the Terminator isn't going to become a reality any time soon. The idea of the singularity has been around in one form or another since the 1950s, and it's become more popular um, in the last 20, 30 years. Um, And the idea behind it is that at a certain point of development, an AI would become better at producing successive versions of itself than a human would. And once that happens, then its evolution would become essentially unpredictable. And essentially, the singularity is the point at which we have no idea what would happen. Do you actually see that happening in the future? I think it's a question that's almost impossible to answer In a way, it's very similar to the sort of Victorians speaking about 
what constitutes life and how do we create life. So if you go back 120 years, people like Mary Shelley were obsessed with the idea that you could reanimate a corpse and somehow take a, an inanimate object and imbue it with the qualities of life. Uh, the problem with that is you immediately start falling into all of these semantic questions and practical questions about what do you mean by life? What does it mean to give life to an object? Uh, and you hit the exact same problems when you start talking about sentience. Until you've got a, a, a meaningful working definition of what it means to be sentient that sort of comes beyond just philosophy and actually has some kind of practical real world equivalence, then there's just no real way to answer the question. I guess one of the problems is when we see depictions of artificial intelligence, robots, for want of a better word, in films, there's this idea that they have feelings, thoughts, they have interactions with humans. And is this just us projecting onto AIs what we think that they might be, you know, building them in our, our own image, in our own minds? Well, that's part of the problem. So every time we talk about something like sentience, we immediately start to bring to that word all of the baggage that we have from our own experiences of being a, a sentient creature. So we talk about artificial intelligence. And remember that artificial intelligence at its root is purely about trying to recreate mechanisms of intelligence and problem solving that, that humans use. As soon as you start talking about motivation or emotions or feelings or goals or objectives, all these other things you're sort of going beyond the original remit and you're starting to link intelligence to lots of things that are basically part of the, the human experience. Uh, and this is one of the problems, really, that if you look at the way we relate to artificial intelligence, it's incredibly ego-driven. It becomes less about what would an intelligent system be like and it becomes more about how do we create something that we can relate to and that, that sort of reproduces us in, in an immortal or godlike form. Is there any inkling that an artificial intelligence would like humans, hate humans, want to destroy us? You've literally no idea what direction this could go in. It might want global conquest or it might be happy like trolling chess programs. There's no kind of reason to think it's going to do one thing or the other. Particularly in films or in popular culture, there's this idea that intelligent robots will rise, the idea of maybe a, a clone army or uh, robotic artificial intelligences taking over. But I've seen videos of robots trying to walk, trying to do stuff. I think there's quite a long way to go here, am I right? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, um, there's obviously been a lot of interest recently in companies like Boston uh, Dynamics, who've been um, you know, experimenting with robots that walk on legs. At the moment, the state of walking robots is pretty poor. They can go a short distance, but they need a lot of supervision. There's no way that you could take a robot and send it off across a, you know, several miles of open terrain and expect it to get back again you know, in one piece unless it was on wheels and the terrain was reasonably flat. So no marauding armies of robots anytime soon? No, I don't, not soon, anyway. What a relief to know we won't find ourselves running hell for leather down Oxford Circus as scores of cyborgs mow us down from behind. I wanted to explore this issue of making a robot walk a little more though, just to be really, really, really sure. Naturally, I searched the internet and found some very entertaining videos of robot fails. My particular favourite was one from the DARPA Championships. Head to our website, nakedscientists.com to see what I mean very amusing. Anyway, back to my original question. We've made huge advances in robotics. Think about keyhole surgery and self-checkouts in supermarkets. So why is making a walking robot this hard? Fortunately, I was able to put this to two engineers over dinner recently. I'm Philip Garsed and I design electronics for large physics experiments. And I'm Rachel Garsed and I'm an electrical engineer at Cambridge Medical Robotics. And of course, what happens after dinner? Dessert, of course. On the menu was cupcakes, except they weren't decorated. And during the main course, Rachel conveniently turned into a robot to show me just how difficult it is to program a cyborg to do a simple task, yet alone become entirely autonomous in the larger world. We've got here Rachel, our friendly robot, and what we're going to do is program her. And it's a bit like programming a computer, but... In this case, she's going to do some physical task. And Rachel knows a few commands that we can give her. 
So firstly, she knows about things, objects. I know the difference between sprinkles, cake and buttons. We have to construct a programme from the different things that the robot understands to do the right sequence of things to get what we wanted to happen. So we give it a series of commands. Exactly. It's almost like having a recipe. You have to do everything in the right order, otherwise you get some horrible disaster. (laughs) So what uh, commands do you understand, Rachel? I understand pick up, put down, unload and rotate. Oh, and also stop. Okay, let's take it away. Let's see how I do. I'm feeling pretty confident. Okay. Okay, so you've made me Blue Peter style. Here's one you made earlier. So it's got four chocolate buttons on, a series of sprinkles and icing. And that's what I'm going for. Pick up sprinkles. So that worked quite well. She's holding the sprinkles. Unload sprinkles onto cake. Stop, 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 stop. That didn't quite go to plan, did it? So you've stopped the robot, but currently there are sprinkles absolutely everywhere. So what do you think went wrong there? I didn't specify how long to unload for. Exactly. We, we have no way of telling the robot at this stage when to stop. It doesn't know how many sprinkles are too many. What we can do is specify a time. I'll get another cake. <laughs> I'm not sure you're going to have any sprinkles left by the end of this. Extra. We've got more. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start again from the beginning. Pick up sprinkles, unload onto cake for one second. Put down. Job one complete. Better. That's better. But did you see how unexpectedly it went wrong? And you didn't. You didn't even have a clue that it was about to go wrong. Now, I suppose it's just that common sense in me that would expect to not pour that many sprinkles. Robots have no common sense. We have to program it. Pick up buttons. Right. (laughs) You've got about 100 there. Is that as many as you wanted? I need four, but probably one at a time, I should imagine. Put down, Rachel. Pick up one button. Unload on cake winning right exactly but do you remember before how we were able to tell the robot to do something for a certain amount of time or for a certain condition you'll notice here that we're doing the same thing many many times so this is where robots actually start to come into their own because we can say for four buttons pick up one button unload button onto cake roto cake and because it knows has then got to be that's got to happen four times It will end it for button number two, button number three, and button number four. I went wrong at every single instruction there, pretty much. I poured sprinkles everywhere, I stacked chocolate buttons on top of each other. And this is still what I would consider a really simple task. And yet, Rachel pretending to be a robot is about as sophisticated as we could get, because we're really still using her human intelligence. She knows how to pick up a tube of sprinkles without crushing it. And all these little things, she can identify exactly where the cake really is. And in reality, robots are much more limited than that. It shows you how versatile humans are and really how much you have to limit the problem if you're trying to interact with a robot with the outside world. And I suppose this goes back to what Michael Osborne said about those jobs that robots will never be able to replace. The vocations that require social interaction, creativity, or require us to engage or manipulate our environment, like gardeners or hairdressers. But there are plenty of other jobs which don't include these skills, like paralegals or auditors. With that in mind, should we be taking artificial intelligence much more seriously right now? Philosopher Hugh Price again. There's a good case for thinking that probably over the course of this century, we're going to be facing one of the biggest transitions that our species has ever gone through. Whatever it's going to mean, it's a challenge, and whatever its um, downsides and upsides, they're things that we face together. And I think it's very important to recognise that fact. And to recognise those facts, we have to know the risks. Like, if we lose our jobs to robots... How do we then perceive ourselves? Will we have a crisis of identity? There's a sense in which each of us has many different identities as members of different sorts of communities, work communities and family communities. And it may be that we need to shift things a little bit away from the kind of work focus in defining what we are and make some of the other kinds of um, focuses more important. It's an interesting point you make because I definitely define myself in part, certainly by what I do. I make radio. I mean... 
what are we without our jobs? It's a, I, I'm not sure how I would define myself. Hi, I'm Greer, I'm a radio producer. Well, I mean, I don't know what else I'd say. Well, perhaps you say that when, when you're meeting people to interview them, but, but it, it may be that in other contexts you introduce, introduce yourself in other ways. I mean, certainly if I'm in a taxi and the taxi driver starts chatting, I mean, I, I'm very careful not to say uh, I'm a philosopher. Um, partly that's because <laughs> taxi drivers tend to have their own philosophies and be very keen to tell you about them. <laughs> so how do you introduce yourself then? Well, sometimes I say, well, I'm a physicist. <laughs> what, because you won't get any questions? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> taxi drivers don't have their own physics in <laughs> Okay, learned lesson. But that and still you're saying a physicist, you know, that still yeah. is work-related. Uh, that's true. And and uh, as I was saying, I, I do think that to some extent we've got to move away from that. I mean, I think some people will, will end up having um, a more what you might call sort of multidimensional kind of, well, work life, but also um, and they'll have more time for other things. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because something that came up with my interview with Mike was that actually algorithms and machine learning may free us up to do things that are much more enjoyable in life. You know, there may be the cons that we lose jobs on the way, but it might mean we have a much more satisfying job. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think there is a wonderful opportunity here, but it's um, the kinds of changes that are needed to make the best of it are probably quite far-reaching. We've talked a little bit about there, about how what the benefits could be in terms of better jobs and stuff, but I'm wondering how actually, um, you might have a more satisfying job, but actually how machine learning might seriously enhance what we do i'm thinking medical images and when you're looking for metastases of cancer or whatever a machine that could endlessly and tirelessly look at those images and work out which were needed for further screening and not i mean i can imagine something like that having real benefits to not only that individual doctor but also society as a whole yes and i think there'll be many cases like that where where machines will soon be better at, at, at doing those sorts of tasks than we are. Fortunately, there's also a, a growing sense that the community of people involved are increasingly aware of, as it were, how much of our future they hold in their hands. And there's, there's a very encouraging sense of a, a growing community coming together um, within the tech community as well as from the outside, from, from academics, to get together to think of meeting the kinds of challenges of the area and, and, and trying to ensure that, that, that we, we maximise the potential benefits. So when you look to the future of AI, what do you envisage our future to look like? It's very hard to do this long-term prediction. Um, but I, I, I think I am an optimist. I think, of course, there are, there are risks we need to consider, but there's a huge, huge potential for it turning out to be something rather wonderful. The, the, the example I'm going to give you is a little bit contradictory, but imagine that before the development of sophisticated language, ancestors were trying to think about the question as to what what they might be able to do if they had language. It's obvious that they wouldn't be able to get very far, and yet what was ahead of them was, in many ways, something quite remarkable. And I think that could, um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that that's the case with AI too. We don't know exactly where it's going, but we do know that some of the possible destinations are really wonderful ones, and we want to work together to make sure that we get to the good ones and not to the bad ones. Hugh's right, artificial intelligence could be revolutionary, but we're future-gazing here. It's all a guesstimate. And thus it's hard to know what our future really holds. So after ruminating and chewing over all the possibilities, what can we take away from this? Well, the artificial intelligence is already here. In fact, it encompasses a lot of things that we'd encounter every day. And you know what? It's only going to get smarter. Yes, it may take some of our jobs. What kind of food would you like? But actually, like all technological revolutions, it will give us a lot back too. The kinds of jobs that will remain after automation are going to be increasingly satisfying and enjoyable. Advances in technology have also saved us time, money, given us home comforts. I, for one, cannot imagine life without a washing machine. I'm sure artificial intelligence will do the same, but in ways we just can't imagine. I think I am an optimist. I think, of course, there are, there are risks we need to consider, but there's a huge, huge potential for it turning out to be something rather wonderful. 
And so as we hand over more and more jobs to machines, it will have some very real human consequences. New questions, not just about our identity. It will expose flaws, it will challenge us. But in some ways, that's really exciting. For now, we've only scratched the surface when it comes to machine learning, smart algorithms and robots. What I'm trying to say is that I'm not going to worry about computers taking over the world anytime soon, and you shouldn't either. But it might be worth checking if they'll take your job first. Many thanks to all my esteemed guests this week. That was Hugh Price, Christian Sandvig, Michael Osborne, Melissa Garshich, Richard Turner, Martin Robbins and Philip and Rachel Garset. The programme was produced and presented by myself, Greer Jackson. The Naked Scientists, as always, will be back next week. So do make sure you listen then. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the SDFC, Rolls-Royce and the EPSRC. Until next week, goodbye from me and the rest of the Naked Scientist team. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.